Scripture reading um, for our sermon passage comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screen. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Yeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I send you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for that. I invite Parker to come up and bring God's word through message now. I'm so thankful to be able to be with you this morning. I'm a little bit of a pinch hitter this morning. I, we was, I was on the schedule to preach in a couple of weeks. Uh, but uh, with, with the COVID outbreak with the Pew family, uh, I've been moved up, so I'm here a little bit early. And uh, because of that, we, I was on schedule to be in the Colossians series, but since we kind of did this last minute, I'm going, we're altering a little bit. Y'all will get back to Colossians, I believe, next week. Uh, but this will give me the opportunity to share a little bit about uh, the work that we've been doing overseas. And I know some of you have, uh, are, are familiar with what we've been doing with International 
churches. And so um, I've taken one of the talks that I normally do to kind of introduce international church ministry and tried to, as much as I can, turn it into a sermon. But typically when I do this talk, I will uh, have a time of question and answer and and that kind of thing because there's a lot of stories that I could tell and we don't have time for all of them. So I do think I'll be with you on Wednesday night. Uh, as part of that, uh, the, kind of the sermon discussion, and we'll open up times for question and answers there. So if if you if something piques your interest, we'll we can talk about it in that uh, in that time uh, on Wednesday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, though, as as we look into God's Word this morning. Lord, your hand is all over this world. Lord, you're doing so many things all the time, all around us. Lord, I pray that you help us to notice. Lord, and help us to be thankful. Lord, help us to see the love that you have for us and the way that you are providing for us in our lives. And also let us see your great purposes and the way that you would use us in bringing your kingdom in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible begins in a very interesting way, doesn't it? The first 11 chapters of Genesis have a lot of really remarkable things in it. I'm always taken away when I read the creation story. And it's just the poetic way that it's presented. God speaks and things appear. And these things are said to be good And then quickly after that, you see the falling action in the story, don't you? When when humanity rebels against humankind. And and as you go through those early chapters of Genesis, you see how serious that rebellion is. That early story where brother murders brother. And you start to think, oh my goodness. How quickly all that was good has turned bad. You see in the the, the account of the flood of how God's wrath had to be poured out on everyone. It was that serious that it, it took God flooding the earth and saving just a remnant of people. Then you also see this very, very interesting story later, the Tower of Babel. I find that story to be fascinating. You can see in, in, the, in the Cain and Abel story the, how on an individual level how corrupt sin has made people. And you can see the universal nature of that sin in the story of the flood and how it's, it's permeated to all people. But we also see in the story of Babel that there is a social effect of sin. It's actually bad that humanity comes together. Because what happens when humanity comes together in their sin is they begin to invent new ways of doing evil. And in the case of Babel, we're going to overthrow God by our high tower. So we see God do something interesting in that story. He purposely confuses the language and disperses the people. That was the grace that was needed when sin was causing social problems, people coming together. But as we look through the story of the whole Bible, 
We can also see that this babble, this confusion of languages, and this dispersion of the nations is not the ideal and it's not what God wants. It was just what sin deemed necessary at the time. Globalization is happening all around us, and the more the nations come together, the more evil we seem to see. Yet, if we look and see the effects of the gospel on the nations, the Bible has a very different tone about that. The gospel doesn't disperse. The gospel draws in. It brings back the people to the original vision where God spoke and all things were created and he called them good. The gospel is God's mission to restore all things new, including these social dynamics. We hear a lot about missions, and, and when we talk about missions, we often use these, the famous passages, right? The, the, the Great Commission, go ye therefore and make the disciples of all the nations. And, and we really emphasize that in our mission talk, and we see it in the book of Acts where, where certain people were sent out by the church, and they were to go out and outside of the church walls and to reach the lost, But there's another aspect to the way God is accomplishing his mission as well. The going out, that's very important. The being sent, vital. But there's also in the Bible a drawing in that God is doing as well. That he is bringing the nations to himself. And we see this in a variety of ways in the scripture and also in a variety of ways in real life. In the 21st century, and it was a big part of my ministry, my, my, my family's ministry in Paris. I was a little bit of both. I'm not from Paris. I'm from Pickens County, actually. It's about as far as you can get from Paris. <laughs> but I was sent to Paris. I, I was living in a place that was not my home, yet I wasn't a missionary. I was a pastor, and I, I was intentionally living there, but my ministry was a ministry of drawing in, of people coming to the global city and being part of a church community where the gospel was being preached. You see, there, there's this give and take. There's this sent out and drawing in that is a part of what God is doing in bringing about his kingdom. My uh, church that I was part of, and, and if some of you don't know, it's called Emmanuel International Church in Paris. I served there for uh, about, about 11 years, uh, the senior pastor for about seven years. And our church was part of what is called the International Baptist Convention, which is essentially English language churches in non-English language uh, countries, normally in Europe and in South America. Uh, and just kind of a little bit of a history, a lot of these churches were started after World War II. And it was, there was kind of an American military presence who was in Europe and they wanted churches. And so they, they began to start churches in English so that they could worship. We have a lot of churches in Germany, for example. But as time has passed by, and, and the nature of Europe and the world has really been impacted by globalization, what we are seeing, especially in these large cities like Paris where I was, God is sending the nations there. And they're coming wanting to go to church. 
It's really interesting. And we had this important ministry to expatriates. And, and what is international ministry? You, it's better maybe to think of it as expatriate ministry. You're, you're reaching people who are living in a place where they were not born, right? And the church, if you just news for us, we are transitioning out of Paris. Uh, we're here on sabbatical for three months. That's why you've maybe seen us around a little bit here. Uh, but we have recently accepted the, the position of senior pastor at the International Baptist Church in Manila in the Philippines. And so we're kind of moving from a European international context into an Asian international context. And my church in Manila is affiliated with the Hawaii Baptist Convention. So it is actually a Southern Baptist church, just like you guys. Uh, and, but we're, again, we're in a very large urban area where God is sending the nations. Now, why is international ministry important? It took a little convincing for me. Because when I've always heard of missions in church and growing up, you, you think of the, the person who leaves home and goes to this place and he spends a couple of years learning a language and maybe he translates the Bible or whatever, in, in, you know, different materials into that language, or maybe they're doing medical missions, but, but they're very much separating going to one people speak, who speak one very specific language. So why would I go overseas and do ministry in English? Shouldn't I, if I'm in France, do ministry in French? And first of all, let me say, do, going to France and doing ministry in French is a big need, right? There are Several people doing it. There's several good French churches, and they are, they are, the French Baptists are, are very good about uh, planting churches and raising up leaders. They're doing great things. But it's also important to reach the very large international community in Paris. You realize that there's probably two to three million English speakers in the Paris area. Two to three million. The state of Alabama is about five million. Okay, just, just for perspective, two to three million. How many churches are there? There's about five where you can hear the gospel. So if you think of five churches serving two to three million people, you got a big need. But you also got a big opportunity. And so these expat ministries are what international churches do. Now, in the Bible, as I was mentioning, as we looked at this passage in Jeremiah, we see that there's so many times in the Bible where God is drawing people to himself when they are living at a place that is not their home. They're expats. They're exiles. That's exactly what we call this whole period in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Because the exile has taken place and the people, you, you see, you heard the, the letter that the Lord wrote to these exiles. In perspective, a lot of these exiles are people who saw the great city of Jerusalem burn. They, they saw the destruction that came when the, when the Babylonians conquered their land. And what they decided that the Babylonians wanted to do, they took the kind of influential people in the, in the culture and brought them to Babylon in order to indoctrinate them. They wanted them to know the Babylonian ways so that all of the conquered lands would become Babylonians in heart, not just you know, in territory. And so they had brought them there in order to indoctrinate them. 
But what we see in this letter is that God was actually the one who sent them there. You see that? When you get, he talks about how I have sent you into exile. We saw that in the earlier passage from, uh, from Acts chapter 17 where, God, where Paul says, God determines the exact places where people live. And in Jeremiah 29, this letter, it's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? He says, this is, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Uh, give your daughters in marriage. Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you. It's not anything super radical. It's kind of just live your life like a Christian kind of language. Go there and love God. Seek the peace of the city and all of them around you. If you want to see how they did this, if you, if you want to know what, what did they do with this letter that they received, one of the best places you can go is the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel is this period. And so when you see people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and Daniel himself, these were some of the leaders of Israel who were brought to Babylon to be indoctrinated. So what do they do? Well, in chapter 1, they don't eat the king's meat. They, they refuse to give in to Babylonian ways and sacrifices the, 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 the laws of the Lord. In chapter 3... In the indoctrinization process, there is a big statue that they are told to bow down to. Y'all know this story? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse. They're thrown into a fiery furnace because of their refusal. And God saves them. They don't cause a riot. They're not stirring up a rebellion. They're just refusing to forsake the Lord. And you see, as the book of Daniel goes on, their reputation grows. In chapter 5, Daniel is now so trusted that the Babylonians want to know what he thinks about things. And there's a writing of prophecy on the wall. And they need Daniel to come and tell us, what does this mean? And of course, it's a message of destruction. The Persians are going to come. They're going to conquer Babylon. And this ends up happening. In chapter 6, now Persia's in charge. And again, the Persian king has a high view of Daniel. Now, the, he gets trapped into a situation where he has to throw Daniel into a den of lions. And the Persian king tries to get out of it, but he's made a decree. He can't go back and he even says that he believes that Daniel's God can save him. And of course, this happens. The exiled people just simply go there and refuse to compromise their faith. Wherever they live, they're living for the Lord. And this is missions. This is God expanding his kingdom just by us living for the Lord wherever he has called us to be. As we think about this idea of exile, we realize in the New Testament that it kind of teaches that we're all aliens and exiles in this world. I'm from Pickens County, and even when I'm in Aliceville, Alabama, there's a sense in which I'm still not from this place. 
as familiar as I am with it. Why? Because this life is not my home. This world is not my home. We're made for something bigger. And in First Peter, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We see this theme continuing in the New Testament in the book of Acts. Think about all of the displaced people that were being ministered to in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, right before Peter gives his very famous sermon in which he's preaching Christ crucified, risen from the dead, at the end of which people are cut to the heart and they say, what must I do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. At the beginning of that passage in chapter 2, verse 5, who was, how was the crowd described? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. God had done something intentional in bringing that crowd together. It was a de-babalization of things. The nations were coming to hear the gospel. They were coming to one place, even where they weren't from. And they heard Peter preached. In chapter 4, verse 30, in chapter, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 44, at the end of that, Those who believed, it said, were united. I think that's an important little point we get here. We have a tendency today to really separate ourselves from each other into subgroups, right? I, and we do it in a lot of different ways. We try to find our identities. And I'm, I find my identity as an American or as a Southerner or as a Bama fan. And we, we, we pick out all these things that make us distinct from other people. But what we see in this gospel preaching is that all of these subgroups, all of these ways that we could decide to divide ourselves and say we're different from other people, what God is doing here is saying, no, you are all alike in Christ when you believe. The dispersion is being reversed. We're being drawn in under the same gospel. Barnabas was a native of Cyprus when he heard the gospel, but not, he was out of his, out of where he was from. The Ethiopian eunuch, of course, was not in Ethiopia. He had been moved and, and, and he heard the gospel not in his heart language, but he had been reading a scroll that he found in Jerusalem. The leaders of, Ant, of the church in Antioch in, in chapter 13 of Acts, they're from different countries, all united into one place. The Philippian church in Acts chapter 16 verse 4 started through Lydia who was from Thyatira. All of these things that we see in Acts, it's just people, people being Christians where they are. Expats, aliens, exiles, finding Christ together. Acts chapter 17 that was just read earlier is a a powerful passage. All the Athenians and foreigners lived there was who it was to. Paul, he didn't see 
this crowd in a, in a negative way, as if, okay, how am I going to, how can I communicate the gospel to so many different people? How do I make sure I contextualize a message for each person from each place who has different philosophies? You got all of the different, you know, people from different places, different languages, different philosophies, all in one place. And what does he do? He preaches a common message. You notice, you notice how he is able to include everyone in it? He appealed to creation. You are all created by God. Every single person can relate to that. He talks about God's sovereignty in determining where people live. Here's his nearness to you. The fact that he's overlooked the ignorance in the, day, in the past days of thinking that you can create gods. And pointing out that they were all created by the God. Everybody, one message, one humanity, one group that has been dispersed from Babel that he is now calling to repent. Christ has been crucified. Christ has been risen. He will judge and he will draw the nations to himself. What about today? It's interesting in the book of Acts. The Roman Empire had sort of made innovations that made all of these things more possible than it had ever been before. The roads that they built made it very easy for people to travel to new places. How much more accessible are people today? I mean, when you go to an airport, you're going to get on a plane and you're going to fly through the air like a bird. Don't forget the wonder of that. I mean, it is amazing. We can, if you want, if you have enough means, you can, cross the, you can cross the globe by tomorrow if you want. How easy it is for us to just travel today compared to years past. Think about this aspect, the language. Isn't it interesting? The book of Acts in the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Even though you got all these people from all of these different places speaking all of these different languages, there was a common language that brought them together that they did business in that they all understood. You don't see Paul spending you know, several years learning specific languages for every person. What he has is a common language which he can communicate with everyone. Now, I recognize that sometimes missionaries need to go and learn specific languages to do the ministry. But for those of you who are not called to that, there is more gospel work today that you can do in just English than you could accomplish in a thousand lifetimes. The world speaks English. If they don't speak English, they're trying to learn it. There's an interesting app on the phone called Duolingo. Have y'all ever, anybody ever seen this app? Yeah, so I saw a map of all of, the lang all of the downloads for that app and what languages people in different countries are trying to learn. If I, were, I, I should have brought the, the display, but I'll, you'll just have to take my word for it. English is overwhelmingly the number one language. In fact, the only real countries that English is not the number one are English-speaking countries. 
So obviously in Australia, they're not downloading English. You know, maybe, maybe around here we need to still, but they, you know, they're, they're, they're learning English everywhere. Why they need it for jobs? They're studying in English, and what it does is it gives you an opportunity to communicate with people in a way that's unprecedented in the history of the world. Babel is being reversed. God is giving the church the opportunity to speak the gospel to people. International church ministry is what we do. It's exciting. God, not only are they speaking English, but he's he's drawing people to these big mega cities, but also to universities. There's plenty in Tuscaloosa, plenty probably in this room, people who are not from here, expats. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the most populated countries in the world? Anybody know? Top 10. China, all right, China's number one. What else? India, number two. U.S., number three. All right, y'all got top three. Yeah, what else? Italy is not, not one. <laughs> Indonesia is, I think, four. It's four or five. Brazil is in the top ten. Yeah, y'all are doing good. What? Huh? Paraguay is not. It's, uh, yeah, Bangladesh, I think, is on there. I think um, Nigeria is on there. There's several. But let me ask you a different question. If you were to take the total number of people in the world who were living in a place where they, are not bo- where, where they were not born, where do you think they would rank? It would be the fourth largest country in the world. U.S. is just a little bit more. So the expat population of the world is immense. And it's trending upward. People are moving for various reasons. They're living in places that are not their own. And this gives the church an enormous opportunity to reach the nations just by the fact that God is drawing them to you. They're right here. And it is an enormous joy to be able to interact in this way. My church in Paris... Of course, there, there's uniqueness to cities, and, and one of the reasons why I always try to uh, promote our ministry is because I want more people to think about intentionally living in some of these places. College students, think about what you're studying. Think, not everyone is called to, quote, vocational ministry, but you can live intentionally for the sake of ministry with whatever profession God is calling you to. And I can tell you, A committed member at a church in Paris is like gold. There is so much we can accomplish just through people committing to their local church because people are coming in. Tim Keller talks a lot about the opportunities that these cities bring. The younger generation is particularly attracted to it. Our church in Paris had a great young adult ministry. Uh, We saw lots of people in that 18 to 35 range baptized. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm getting water. Um, and, and it was just a really important ministry, uh, that demographic that we were able to commit to. Another big, what, what is what Keller calls the cultural elites. 
What he means by it's not that they're people who are better than other people, but it's people who are exercising lots of influence. They're making decisions that affects the jobs of thousands of people, people who are the CEOs of these big com companies. They're moving into these cities. We had um, <clears throat> several involved in our church in Paris. Um, we also see um, that these cities are also a great opportunity to reach the poor. The, the poor tend to congregate their, in these cities because that's where they find a lot of their um, opportunities. Just kind of a couple of stories along those. <clears throat> I was always amazed in international ministry. The, the, the places I ended up going for the sake of the gospel, 2010, Christmas 2010, I was in Paris. So with a guy from India, and I was walking through the snow to share the gospel with some men from Bangladesh in French. And they were living 24 men in one apartment. And I was thinking, how did my life ever turn into that? <laughs> I never would have predicted this for myself. Yet, here I am, speaking French to people from Bangladesh and sharing the gospel. We also saw that these opportunities to reach the poor, but also talking about these cultural elites through my wife. My wife is the more cultural elite of the two of us. Uh, and so she, she was, uh, there was a time when she was a makeup artist during Fashion Week at Paris. And so we got to be, go to this party um, through, it's one of the very high up fashion moguls in Paris. And so we, I, I remember we walked into this apartment building they put in a, uh, a code in the elevator and the elevator opened to this guy's living room and there's like one, one side that was on the roof, one side had a view of the Eiffel Tower, the other side had a view of Sacré-Cœur and just filthy rich people all around me and I got a chance to share the gospel there. And I was always just amazed at the doors God opened just from being a Christian where I was. We also see unaccessible, unreached people groups who are made accessible in big cities. One example, in fact, a mission team from Alberta came and visited us in 2013. <clears throat> and y'all had been praying at, at some prayer meeting at the time for the Uyghur people, which is a people out of Western China who um, Muslim background, and they are persecuted in their own country. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when you came, you actually found one, that we had a Uyghur girl who was a Christian in our church. And it was amazing because she had started an online Bible study with all of the Uyghurs who were living, you know, they were doing it on Skype. That was before Zoom was a thing. And they were having discipleship amongst an unreached people group through displaced people that God had brought to Paris. We reach the nations, we send them back. They're able to disciple their people. Cities, Tim Keller says, has more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on earth. It's an enormous opportunity. We found that in terms of ministry, 
the local church is the greatest apologetic. Do you want evidence that the gospel is true? Does it create what it says it creates? A community of the nations coming together in unity, a debabilization of things. We saw this in Paris. Several people coming into our community not believing yet, only to see how it is the message of the gospel that had created what they were seeing, the community that was welcoming them in. And because of this importance and the, the community church aspect of things, church planting became very important in what we did. And I'm so thankful for this church and how you guys helped these things to come to pass. You know, the story from KJ, he was in England and we had done this plan to plant a church in the city center to reach more people because we were were kind of at a maximum. And we had started doing this once a month service and KJ contacted me and said, hey, if we came to Paris, could you plant? And I was like, yes, that's the only thing we're missing. When KJ moved to Paris, we launched the church about four months later on Easter Sunday in 2018. Today, this church is supporting its second pastor. They have elders. They have a very healthy weekly ministry. The gospel is being preached in a community of Christ is established. Large thanks to what you guys have done. Now, we have planted our third community in Paris. We call it EIC, Emmanuel International Church, Rive Gauche. It's in the southern part of town. They launched at Easter this past year, and they're still meeting. They're, it's really cool. They're meeting in a, um, in a cafe that has Muslim owners, and they love them. They have such a good relationship, and people are coming in off the street to hear the gospel and to hear the gospel sung. There's a whole new area. It's, it's a, just a little, just a, a few blocks away from 43 international uh, dormitories where PhD and master's level students are living. They've come to Paris because of the global education opportunities, and they are studying in English. What a great opportunity. God drawing the nations to himself. Missions is both ascending and a welcoming. There's both aspects of it. In Isaiah 66, 18, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. The gathering of the nations is a coming home to the kingdom. And in this kingdom, all of our little subgroups are over. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, male nor female nor Alabama nor Auburn. We're all one. We're all together because we have all been created by the same God and drawn in by the same gospel. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Christ crucified, risen from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that
while we were alien and exiles. You welcomed us back home. Lord, as we consider what you're doing globally and the opportunities that you're bringing to us, both with our English and and bringing people to us, Lord, I pray that you give us a compassion for for the displaced. Lord, help us to see the opportunities we have to reach the nations, even here in Tuscaloosa. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that you have brought to us, and I pray that as we commit to you, that we might see your glory more clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name.